This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia, where you can now study single module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in a full university degree. To find out more, head to open.edu.au. This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking to Daniel Sparks. Um, I knew Dan back many years ago when we both started working in advertising, and now he is ranked one of the top 25 art directors in the world. We talk about how to succeed in advertising, does creativity actually matter, and we finish up with a fascinating conversation about side projects, some of Dan's which have succeeded and some which have failed. We talk about the lessons learned. Let's go talk to him. So, who are you and what do you do? My name's Dan Sparks. I have my little family at home. I'm a husband there and I look after two dogs. My wife supports my creative endeavours. The dogs, not so much. Currently employed as an um, advertising creative, specialising in art direction. <laughs> when you started off there, I was like, you've got two kids that I don't know about? What the f- <laughs> um, not that I know of anyway. Okay, all right. <laughs> it could be the best kept secret. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off with your intro there, uh, advertising creative. What is an advertising creative? In, in its purest form, it's probably um, like a problem solver. So, I think every, every day we look at clients' problems and just whatever the approach is, you know, it might be a traditional marketing campaign. could be something for like a business solution like using CX. But yeah, that's, I think we just solve problems in its most purest form. How does one get a job at an advertising agency? It's kind of an exciting place to be, but how do you get there? Yeah, so I think there's lots of different ways in. Um, and I think most people weirdly fall into it. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is, they do. Which is really strange. But I think um, people usually come out on the other side okay for the most part, I think. Um, or, or they move on to something like even greater or it, it kind of kicks off their career in something else. But yeah, I would say that in terms of like the most obvious entry point for, for my job as a creative would be to study um, and go to university, studying communications. Sorry to interrupt. Is there actually a university degree in advertising? Yeah. So you can study advertising. Yeah. So, there's um, RMIT offer a communications course and I think that's probably the most um, like well-known one, like the bachelor there. But um, also at the same time, I believe there's a TAFE offering as well through a few other education providers. Sure. Advertising is this hidden industry that nobody knows about that is really cool and interesting and fun to work in, but it's fucking hard to get a job there. Like yeah, it's, absolutely. It's really hard to get into. Once you're in the circle, I think you, you've kind of got a, a bit of a, I guess, like a case study that you can take to the next employer and, and it's really easy to move around, but yeah. getting into the industry from outside sure. is quite hard to break in. So, that's yeah. why I was kind of setting this up and, and yeah, tell us about how you got into uh, the advertising industry. Yeah. So, I um I studied design at um, a TAFE and then from there, I was offered a job um, from that program, but working at an engineering company. Um, I won't say who because it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> what, the company or your work there? <laughs> no, my work there. <laughs> it was definitely my work there. The way that kind of panned out, I think I almost got fired probably maybe like 15 times just from my knowledge of CAD, which was their software they were using, even though I had studied um, the Adobe Creative Suite. So, it was quite challenging, but I managed to hold on to that for, I think, a year and a half or two years. I sort of, I don't know how I managed that, but I, I must have bamboozled them or, or brainwashed them secretly in my without me knowing. <laughs> 
Um, I then ended up uh, working at Ogilvy, which is a uh, full service agency, meaning they that they just do everything in advertising, like that in communications. So outdoor banners, TV ads, through to like um, Facebook graphics and, yeah, and radio and whatever, right? Yeah, and down to CRM programs as well, like right. anything like that. And I worked in studio there um, for just over four years, and that that kind of really taught me, I think, um, good discipline and, and quick use on the um, the tools we call them. But um, that just means you're using your computer in a program. Um, <laughs> I don't. I think that's probably like a head nod to um, craftsmen of um, like of the past that are much more crafty than us. Okay. Um, and have real skills. <laughs> and then from there, I um, I ended up doing uh, a second like kind of course, like it's kind of it's called award school which um, is like a 16-week course where you just have to come up with concepts. So, you get a brief each week and if you don't solve that one, it's about solving the, that one and then that one and the next one until you kind of got these 16 briefs that you've done in 16 weeks. Um, and then from there, hopefully, you make top 10 and you get a job. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't happen for everyone. So, for me, I didn't make top 10 and that drove me to kind of really – pursue what I really wanted to do which was become an art director when I was in studio still I'm um, doing design to be honest I think resilience is the is the case so I think I just got back on my horse and and just went for it again so um so it drove you yeah I, I kind of use um, maybe some fuel absolutely yeah like of course you get down about it a bit but I think if you stay down like you're not going to really you're not going to get anywhere you know like life's all about you know the, the the hits you take and how you get back up so that's a nice uh, metaphor for just the advertising industry in general, I think. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> right. So, how did you actually, you know, you failed. How did you get that job in advertising then? After that, um, I partnered up um, with a guy called Ed and uh, we just proceeded to kind of make our own our own briefs, like the stuff that we had kind of learned from award school and what we knew. The craziest one that we came up with was speed trains, <laughs> which I don't think is going to help anyone in Melbourne, but it was good to make ads for. Wait, um, what, what's what's speed trains? Oh, just like like Shinkansen's in Japan. Uh, <laughs> you mean like the bullet train? <laughs> yeah, the bullet okay, train. <laughs> right. Um, to get to the point, I think, um, yeah, me and Ed ended up making, I think, 16 new pieces of work in our folio in the space of maybe two to three weeks. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty intense, but that's the kind of way we operated. Like, we were really, both really passionate getting in and had the same drive, which is really important for your... Um, your own team member that you're going to work with, you know, and see more than your um, actual partner, you know. So, it's, yeah. it's, it's quite tough that. At the same time, yeah, after that, we, we had all this, this work together and we probably had maybe like 30 pieces of work and we started shopping it around um, different, different agencies um, in town. I think we were, at one point we were doing three job interviews or three book showings, I call them, a week for maybe like two months straight. And, and then we ended up going back to Leo Burnett where I ended up working for the third time. And they just loved our drive and our passion. And that's what got us in front of our boss to have that meeting and, and discuss possible employment. Yeah. I think a lot of people who get jobs in advertising, there's no kind of, there's no sweet Cinderella story. Uh, most of the time, it's you got to have the drive. You know, you did three interviews basically to get a job at Leo Burnett and all the other places that you're interviewing at the same time. My story was not the same, but uh, but there was a similar theme of persistence uh, w- within that all right, so you've got your first job as a creative, you know, the dream at an advertising agency. First day, what happens? So, my first day um, at Leo's was I, I walked in the door, really excited, really um, really keen to kind of get started and sink your teeth into it because you have an understanding of it before you get in there usually. And you sit down and they've arranged like a, well, in, in my case, they had arranged like a nice little stationary pack. Um, you get a little place for your computer, 
uh, where you and your creative partner are going to sit and you sit there basically until they have a brief ready for you. So, <laughs> um, which sometimes, you know, advertising agencies, for as organized as they are, they're very disorganized too. So, um, that can take like half a day or it could take a whole day or it could take a week. You basically start- Sounds pretty cruisy. Uh, it's not. It's just the way the work comes in and, and flows out is um, it's kind of in waves. If you come in and you hit a patch where it's not as busy or, or the work is kind of placed with other teams, then obviously the flow of work isn't going to come to you. So, you have to wait patiently. So, I think for a passionate creative um, or someone that really wants to do well, you should look at their client list, which is usually pretty easy to get because usually it's printed on the wall as you walk in. <laughs> it um, is. They love putting it on the wall. Yeah. It's, it's a very it's a badge of honor, I think. Um and for some reason, they seem to hold on to those longer than they've got them. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, that's, and I just start thinking you pick one brand off there and you just, you just start thinking of ideas and you've got no idea if they're right or wrong, but maybe you hope that you can understand that brand enough and you can associate with it and use personal experience to kind of create them an idea that might get through and, and actually create some culture for that brand. What's your superpower? <laughs> yeah. So, this is the thing that I like to kind of talk about. Um I think it's good to define because I think everyone has their own strengths and has multiple of those. What is your superpower? And I usually say my advertising superpower because it doesn't really help me anywhere else. Like, <laughs> like people just look at me like I'm weird. Um, but for me, yeah, that's definitely resilience. And I think the second one would be that I don't really require very much sleep, which, <laughs> which sounds very unhealthy, which it probably is. But I think um, for the industry that I'm in, that's quite fortunate um, at this time. Um, and I always tell my friends that by the time they're 70 and, and kicking on with life, I will have like lived more youthful hours uh, than them. So, <laughs> yeah, but um, you might age quicker. You might feel 70 when you're 45. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think or I probably, even today. <laughs> I think I probably am, but <laughs> let's find out in a few years. Hey, um, my resilience comes from being um, told no and, and being challenged by that. I kind of use no, no as a driving force for me. Um, and I think, like, every, I know it's New Year's resolutions sound so cliche and, and, and so, um, you know, just like what you think and everyone breaks them. But for me, I always set, well, I remind myself, I guess, rather than set my resolution, but it's to move myself forward every day. You know, it could be, it could be through work. It could be through a side project. It could even just be something as simple as life admin. But I think for every day, I just want to, I just want to move, move the ball and chain, like just that 1% extra, which hopefully, you know, eventually you get to the mountaintop, if that, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that's why I stay up so late as well because when I have a day where I feel like I haven't achieved anything, I will make sure that I stay up and do something for me. Yeah, yeah, I like that. What's the end goal then? You know, what what is that mountaintop, the the pinnacle? What does yeah. it look like? Yeah, so I'm not really sure because I think when I worked as a designer, I wanted to be uh, in the creative department really badly. My own eagerness got in the way of my professionalism of that. Um, so, I started like disregarding things just to get to my dream job. But I think if I went about it now, that'd be a, it'd be a different way about it. Like when you get there, your goalpost shift. And I think when you've got the trajectory to be like the, a CD or creative director, which is my next step probably um, in terms of like linear kind of progression, you end up doing less of what you love and you step into more of a management role where you previously had no skills. Um, hopefully for some people, they, they do get trained up a little bit, which is quite strange because I think, you know, if you're really good at something, why would they change that? Yeah, as a creative, that's traditionally where you would head. Yeah, I think a lot of people go through that similar journey though. Like as you as you grow in a career, you end up taking on more management roles and managing people and doing less of the hands-on work. And uh, the, there's no really good way to learn management except doing it. Uh, there's no <laughs> there's no kind of like um, prerequisite of like the, the skills you have to learn. You just get given somebody to look after and it's like, oh shit, what do I do now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is really interesting. Like I think 
um, hopefully within a few years, that'll be me, my learning curve. Um, you probably don't realize that you're preparing for it while you do the job, but I'm sure you are. Yeah. So, the, the pinnacle of a advertising creative's journey is to be what's called the ECD, the Executive Creative Director. Yeah. Is that what you want to be? I think when I first started initially, I was like, yep, that's like the Michael Jordan of um, of advertising. But then having worked in the industry for quite some time, I think because because it is a young person's game and you don't see too many craves like that are over the age of 50, which is terrifying. Um, it's because they stay up too late and they age to 70, yeah, 20 years early. <laughs> very true. They just they start <laughs> dropping off, don't they? Um, yeah, but for me, I think right now I want to make work that kind of transitions outside of advertising as well or like has that kind of um, that push into culture which I think allows me to have more freedom for my where I want to go in the end and I I don't know where that is exactly yet um yeah for me it's all about creating great work but then you know um whether that puts you um at a tech company like like the Facebooks or the Samsungs of the world or an Amazon or it keeps you in traditional advertising um, or digital advertising you just keep your next stride and take what opportunity comes to you yeah, it's interesting that uh, you talk about going from an advertising career into tech. I mean, that opportunity probably didn't exist 10 years ago, but I dare say that a lot of new creatives in the industry today probably have a similar goal for their career. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's because they know in, when you get into advertising, you, you do notice that it's it's not finite. Like, you can't be there forever because it's just... And I don't know why that is. Like, I, don't, I think that should be challenged quite a bit, but um, and I, I'm not sure how to challenge that. But um, it is quite ageist um, and when you hit like 50 or 60, I have my reasons why I think that's probably the case in, in terms of like, you know, staying up on less pop culture, things become more important to you like family and actual just like living a bit of more life, like work-life balance is quite important probably at, at that stage. You go after whatever kind of comes your way that you think you can contribute to. But for me, it's always about being grounded in coming up with ideas no matter what kind of field I'm in because that's what I really love. Yeah, I wonder if a lot of it has to do with people just growing up. You know, when when you have kids, uh, you can't spend as long as w- at work, right? It's it's not ageist, it's life stagist. Uh, yeah. Working in advertising, I think, historically has been very hard work uh, and a lot of hours. You know, you and I worked a lot of hours when we when we worked together in, uh, in advertising. I assume you're probably still working a lot of hours. You're kind of punching the midnight oil quite often, particularly when you're working on like pitches and, and or there's like that one of those big waves of work coming through. But it is a lot of fun to work in. You get to work on a lot of cool shit. Uh, so, that's kind of the trade-off you make. You trade enjoyable work and good, really smart people for just a lot of hours working. But when you get to the point where you want to have a family and stuff, um, I think a lot of those trade-offs start to change and, uh, and and you may start to spend less time at work. And so, that means your career may stagnate. Uh, you may not enjoy it anymore because you can't get all the work done that you, that you want to do or that life that that work life is putting too much pressure on your family life and so you change careers and you do something else and you leave the industry so do you agree um yeah i think so like, <laughs> i think that's definitely a factor it's it's so hard for me to answer that question because i, I don't have a, like that kind of extended family yet yeah and my um, wife is very supportive and, and also works quite frequently um in a totally different industry of um of nursing so oh she's shift work right so yeah absolutely um yeah, it's, it's a h- tough one for me to answer, but I think that probably is part of the case. Um, 
And I think people just don't want to do that forever. Like people want to want to go live their lives. Like maybe maybe we're the idiots and the jokes on us. But um, <laughs> but yeah, for some reason I still really love advertising and I'm, and I'm really addicted to it. And I love the hours. But maybe I'm a bit of a workaholic as well. Yeah, the joke's definitely on me because I left advertising to go and start my own business, and uh, I thought that was gonna give me more time and, and whatever. And fuck that for a joke, <laughs> even worse. Yeah, I reckon I, reckon I could have told you that one. <laughs> I think I knew it deep down, but um, it's it's easy to fool yourself when the flashing lights of uh, being an entrepreneur are uh, staring you in the face. But Absol- anyway. Absolutely, you gotta have some self denial, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's actually funny. I I think if anyone knew how tough it really was to start a business, nobody ever would. You just kind of like do things with a little bit of like the blinkers on, and then once you kind of get down that rabbit hole, um, you're kind of too far invested to back out by that point. So uh, you just kind of got to keep going along with the momentum and the inertia. Yeah, absolutely. Let's shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about creative for the sake of creative. There's been a lot, I guess, of conjecture over the years about how advertising has evolved and whether creative agencies are still really a valid place to be. But I want to kind of ask you a question to kind of kick this topic off. I was looking through your LinkedIn profile um, in preparation for this interview and instead of listing your job title as an art director, which is technically what you are, you call yourself a creative and not just in this job, but in all of your advertising jobs, you know, um, you've always just been Dan Sparks or Daniel Sparks, creative, Daniel Sparks, creative, Daniel Sparks, creative. Why? Um, so, I think today, like the art director and, and copywriter titles are quite kind of, they're a bit dated. And I also think it limits you. Like, I have a really full belief that what I offer is more than just art direction. I look at that and think that's like 1960s um, Bill Burnback kind of language. As a creative, I think the way I look at it is um, that you don't really limit yourself to one area of skills, which would be art direction. Now, as a creative, you need to like, or creative or, or an art director, you need to wear a lot of hats. And for an art director, that means you need to, you need to understand partially digital code, like with CSS, because that is your visual aesthetic um, digitally. You need to have the mind of a, a TV or cinematic director, because when you are storyboarding or when you're thinking about um, an ad, how's that going to look initially? So I think you explode out of your own role. To call yourself an art director is, it would be quite limiting for me. I think that by just me putting that creative title in there makes me live and breathe it a bit, bit more comfortably and, and defines what I do a bit more. Sure. I want to ask you about the advertising industry and some of the best campaigns that, sure. uh, that have kind of existed. But I want to do this in a bit of a quick fire fashion cool. uh, just to kind of give it a bit of, um, bit of excitement. So, here's the quick fire round. First up, best advertising campaign of all time. Um, very tough question to answer. I um, probably can't answer that, but I'll, one piece of work that I've liked and I think is kind of is modern thinking, but also very clever, is um, American Express Shop Small. So basically, they took the methodology of black. So the, what they wanted to do um, was promote small business um, and small business sales um, from American Express. And the way they did that was they created this day, um, the day after Black Friday, where it's like the big retail like day for cash injection. Um, they created this shop small day, and what I love about that is, uh, from my understanding, they initially took that idea and called and it was called Local Tuesday. I'm um, from Crispin Porter and Bogusky did this idea. They ended up taking that to the client, and the client said, "Well, we've been thinking about something similar for, for on a, the Saturday after." And and this two like this partnership between agency and client is obviously really evident within that idea. It would have required. Can, so I, m- can I cut you off for one sec? Your starting to bleed into the next question, which is why? Why was it a good campaign? Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> so, for me, 
what I find amazing about it is it required so much participation. And I think today no one really gives a fuck about your advertising. Like people are paying to get rid of your advertising. Mm. They use ad blockers, things like that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And me too, because it, it saves on data as well. So why not? <laughs> but what I found amazing is they didn't they didn't do anything really like out of the box in this time, but they they hit every single touch point. So they had social media toolkits, packets of logos that people could download and place where they needed, posters, um, buttons and digital assets were distributed. And then obviously they had partnerships with Twitter and FedEx where they were offering free delivery for these small businesses. So it really gave them a leg up. And then they also activated like these neighborhood champions that kind of were really about shopping small which I think is just an amazing thing for, you know, I think it generated something like $5.7 billion in one year for that, for that industry, which, which is quite huge, I imagine, to small business. Yeah, absolutely. You're cheating with the, the quickfire round. <laughs> I was going to ask, what were the results? So, let's just rewind 10 seconds and, and talk about the, the finances uh, of what happened from, from that campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it was super effective. It raised like lots and lots of money like in the billions for that one year. And I can imagine, um, without me knowing too much about the year on year, but I imagine it's even more successful now because people are probably more conscious of it and it's become an actual event. What I think is um, also amazing is that now that campaign um, exists as, as, a, as a property, but um, other agencies are taking it for their own brands. So, like say like an Ogilvy might have a small business um, as one of their clients and they use that to promote their business. So, they're taking someone else's idea and promoting it on their own ad, which shows how successful that campaign was. Sure. Awesome. All right. I love it. Going a, a little bit deeper, best advertising campaign in the last three years. It's not necessarily a campaign, but it's more of a brand and how they kind of sit. What I, I really like and really respect currently is um, all the work coming out of Adidas. Um, and that's not because they've stopped TV and I think that's a brave thing because I think that still probably has a role for them, but um, even though they don't, they don't think so now. I just think they have a really modern perspective of what advertising and branding should be. And most of their work seems to um, inject culture like in, into the work and also outwards. I think it's modern, it's young, um, and it's like brilliantly smart as well. Um, and the, the three pieces of work that stand out from, from their stuff is um, there will be haters. So, where it was like an admission that they had these soccer players and um, they just said there will be haters, like don't worry about it. And it was an attitude that they sold and it was all about like kind of flashy boots, like soccer boots. Um, and then the other one that I really loved recently was original is never finished. And I think that really hits their brand value like the, or their brand purpose. It's about just being you. And the way they rolled that one out was that they took Frank Sinatra's My Way track, which is pretty classic. That makes a lot of sense to that kind of mentality. Um, but then they took the world's best creators and recreated it in their own style. And um, what I liked about that, it picked up a bag of awards for um, entertaining, like for entertainment categories. It's more than advertising. It's... It's actually something that people want to engage and interact with and be part of. And if you're looking at amazing creative work now, like I think there's some categories at award shows that are quite valuable in terms of looking at like what modern thinking is and what how people engage with it. All right. So, you cheated on that one as well. You gave me the why and the results. <laughs> You'll have to insert the, uh, the why quickly. Uh, so, <laughs> just in post-production, I'll just be like... And why? <laughs> you just keep blazing through. <laughs> All right. I'm going to hold you strictly to this one. Um, so, the, the the last category is best advertising campaign you've worked on personally. Alrighty. So, that would be um, currently uh, Reword, 
which where basically we created a spell checker for cyberbullying, which could pick up uh, phrases. Um, so it could distinguish between me saying that um, you're a fucking arsehole would, would flag versus uh, you're a fucking legend, which is positive. So it was smart and I think um, it was quite adaptable and, and could evolve quite easily. Right, so it was a plug-in for like web browsers, basically, that would, instead of spell checking, it would profanity and, I guess, like bully check, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason it was designed like that, because we know that people can turn that off and, and kids can turn that off, but in its infant stage, if we call it, I think that was probably where it had its success was within schools. Yeah. Obviously, the dream was to get that onto devices, and I think they're still pursuing that. I'm away from that job currently now, though, but... um. Hang on, I'm going to hold you to it. Why? Why was it a good campaign? Yes, I got it in. <laughs> you did it. You did it. I interjected. Um, well, I think for multiple reasons. So, for my, myself personally, I learned a, a shitload on that job. We wore like so many hats. So, like from the initial prototyping done by a creative team just to prove that it could be done to pitching out to like, you know, big CEOs of companies um, trying to get backing of funding. Uh, and we designed a, basically a brand from the ground up. We kind of approached that as a little startup within a bigger agency. And what were the results? And yeah, the results. So, um, I think in its initial 12 months, it had um, 700,000 installations um, nationally and probably probably some international as well because we set out to change behavior. So, we set out to just, it wasn't about getting those people that are obviously just trolls and, and extreme bullies that they're just going to bully no matter what. It's, it was about getting the fence sitters to understand it and to realize what that moral compass was and, and how to change that behavior. And, and the amazing thing that we saw was that um, 67% of people reduce the amount of bullying per user. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's a bit of like um in a way like confirmation bias, like the fact that you are more aware of what's going on, you kind of change your behavior because of that. It's like, oh, it it just kind of like really subtly reminds you that you want to behave a certain way. So, that's good. To make it accepted because obviously internet um, censorship is a, is a it's a huge issue. Like we just tried to make it as simple as a spell checker, just a red strike through where it wasn't invasive and still people could still post. So, we're going to talk about advertising awards and awards shows, you know, the the Khan Lions advertising um, awards and that kind of stuff. So, how did Reword do in terms of industry recognition? Industry recognition comes a few ways. So, obviously, one of those is award shows. Um, PR is a big part and that's the kind of one that I look at and get my most, probably be the most proud out of, like where it kind of earns its PR, um, not brought PR. Um, and then also just things that you get back personally from it. But yeah, so I guess some um, reword the where the success for that job came from. Um, initially, obviously, it was the hard work of the people that worked on it. But then also, it got onto um, onto some of the um, national like press kind of shows, like you know, Today Show and things like that. But then when it really exploded was when it, um, it hit CNN and Good Morning America um, and Mashable, um, and from there it kind of had its own force. Like it was it was uh, like unbelievable. I think I was awake at like. 3am just watching the twitter feed just going just going up for it and i was really excited like really happy that we'd hit something that kind of kind of hit culture and people were kind of into it um which is probably the most exciting time the whole time of the project but um yeah from there i think um after that obviously the agency enters the award shows um just to show their own creative um i guess uh credibility um so in terms of the i guess the best work the best um awards that it's won we're definitely at um, DNAD, which is probably seen as the, the cream of the crop. Um, it won the, the highest award that you can win there, like a, a yellow pencil. Obviously, there's a black pencil, which is slightly higher, but they're only awarded very rarely. And then at Cannes this year, it won two gold lines, which, we're, which I'm pretty proud of as well. Um, and I'm also, 
I think it hit South by Southwest as well um, and got an innovation finalist, which is really exciting too because it's kind of out of what I like. I like things that break out of the advertising space. And for me, that is one of those things that is is that. Yeah, awesome. And, uh, you know, you talked about DNAD and you talked about Khan Lions. Those are, you know, some of the most prestigious awards that you can win in the advertising industry. I want to ask you about that in just a minute. But before we do, does creative work actually produce better client outcomes? Um, I think there's two ways to look at it. So, I think you can stuff your creative like work down people's faces constantly. And you see that on TV with um, like retail brands, especially like, you know, Coles where they're producing work that hits eyes quite often. At the same time though, like they, they'll buy your product. But what does that mean for the brand? Does that mean that they like your brand or are they, it's just part of a necessity? If you're selling a cheese and you're smashing people with that cheese ad, that cheese better be bloody good or it's going to piss a lot of people off. Where creative work is really powerful, um, like award-winning creative work, even if it's not award-winning, but it's it's pushing the boundaries a little bit more, it can have a higher effect so you can get more bang for your buck. So, those, obviously, those people that put work out that hits eyeballs constantly uh, is at a premium in terms of finance. But um, if you make one th- splash in the ocean that will create massive PR, I think your potential is greater from the, the money spent. And also, I think in terms of if people will respond to that work and love your brand because of it. Like, I think a really great example of that um, is Red Bull. Like, I think they do these amazing, like, one-off kind of stunts that probably cost a lot of money, but I think I would swear by it that it's cheaper than running TV ads over and over and over. Yeah, sure, sure. And you're referring to, like, Red Bull Stratus that that was maybe five or six years ago where they did the highest free-fall jump of all time. And yeah, absolutely. And they got a heap of free PR from that, basically. But at the end of the day, that was just one big ad for Red Bull. Definitely, yeah. That's exactly it. And that's their mentality. They just partnered with events and that's that's them. All right. Let's get to the, the real tough question here. I want to talk about advertising awards. And, uh, and you and I have actually had some debates about this in the past. As an advertising creative, like, it's a good feeling to win a Khan line or a yellow pencil at DNAD. Like, these are awards that um, are the pinnacle of the advertising industry and will open career doors for you in the future, give you, hopefully, a pay rise and all kinds of stuff, right? Like, it's a big badge of honor to, to get your name sure. against a campaign that wins at Khan. But I've always been very critical of these awards because having a creative campaign doesn't necessarily mean that the campaign has had an effective result for the client, right? Maybe that that down-down prices are down, really annoying jingle that Coles did a couple of years ago, that's not going to win an award at Cannes, but it sells a lot more shit at Coles. Totally. Uh, so, give me, uh, give me your defense about why industry awards are good okay so industry awards for people are good like for the people that are within the industry it gives the people credibility it's also a celebration of the work so if you think similar to like how hollywood kind of celebrates the oscars how beneficial is that because i can sit in the room and tell you which movie is good as well but what i think it does do is that for your next job or, or where you're headed it gives people clear definition of where you kind of sit as a creative and where what kind of um level you're at Khan, for example, it's a celebration of creativity. It's a festival of creativity. To me, we're not talking about effectiveness. We're not talking about, while that's a part of it and it should be a part of it, yeah, you're talking about celebrating the work and I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, like, celebrating creativity is is interesting. But for me, that's kind of where it ends. Like, it's interesting because really, it, it's just a bunch of, like, self-masturbatory industry people that get together and just create an award show 
to celebrate something that actually has no result. The better, more creative campaigns may or may not actually make your client more money. At the end of the day, like when a client comes to you with a brief and says, hey, we've got a communications problem and the creative team gets put on the job, your job is to fix that communications problem and usually it's to make them more money or to reposition them in the market or whatever, right? Not to come up with something that's really creative. Yeah, where so I think there is it is a double-edged sword. So I think there is two sides to this this tale, and I can and tell you the other side as well. In terms of new business for an agency, having an award is basically ha- is being in that pitch room without even being offered the pitch. So I think that's a big thing. Like I, people look for good creative work because it means they can probably do the day-to-day stuff just as well. Um, whether that's the case or not, you know, that's obviously up to the agency. But I think they're definitely like to your point. There has to be a healthy balance, like because agencies are entering creative shows with just creative work that no one's ever seen or no one's been effective. And I, I think it's important to do that on real jobs. I buy the reasons you're giving me, but the reasons are for the wrong party. The, the reasons are for, oh, it's great as a creative because, you know, opens up career opportunities and gives me credibility. The reasons are it's great for an agency because it gives them credibility and they don't have to pitch for more work or, you know, it kind of gives them a foot in the door for new client work or whatever. Winning a kind line or other similar award is great for, you know, the the creative team behind it. Um, it's great for their career opportunities. It's great for the agency that made it because it puts them with a seat at the table in the future for, you know, other other work and other interesting clients. But I guess like the bit that I can't get over is, does it make a meaningful difference to the client, to the business that was, you know, involved in it, the brand? And let me just explain this for a sec. Like, I'm sure it's great to go along to an award show and stand up there in your, you know, tuxedo and win this big fucking metal thing that looks like a line or a whatever, right? It's great. But the CMO of Adidas, let's just say, for example... He gets to like high five his team and pose for photo ops and that. But winning that award doesn't sell more runners. It doesn't increase Adidas's stock price. It doesn't, you know, have any meaningful result to the brand. And I, I think the point I'm trying to make is in the communications industry, we should be servicing our clients. Uh, in, in the advertising industry, we should be doing things that, have measurable results for the brands that we work on and winning awards. And the reason I use self-masturbatory as a description earlier uh, is because, you know, everything about the Khan Awards show or any awards show for that matter is about the creatives that work on it, the agencies, the work. It's, It's putting the creative work up on this pedestal and it may not have any impact on the client. Anyway, I'll let you respond. Yeah, so I think, yeah, you you definitely make some good points and I think that is definitely partially it and I think there is um, what I call a piss take, not um, (laughs) self-masturbatory bullshit. (laughs) Um, But I think, yeah, some agencies... I use that language for impact because it... (laughs) I I agree, I I get you. Where it does help, and this is still, once again, um, very much about the individual and for clients but and also for the business um, indirectly, Um, it gives clients that are coming into the industry or clients that are kind of higher up, you know, like your CMOs, it shows them what work stands out and what is good. And it gives them a better, I think, appetite to pick by that work, which potentially does add value to their business. And then as a creative, when when you know there's awards out there and when you know there's incentives, you want to make the work better, which is better for the public, which hopefully in result does make it better for the brand and better their image is a lot better. So I think there is, whether it's 
I'd say I would agree with you that there is much more benefit to the agency and to the people that have worked on that piece of work and also the, the CMO in terms of their job prospects at other brands. But there is things that it does help. Yeah, and I would say that um, at the same time though, like you can recognize what works really great and what's out there and it's amazing because ideas that are getting to PR, which I like I'm way more proud of an idea when it hits culture, when it goes through PR than I am when I win an award. The award for me um, is like what you said. It, it it can progress my career. It's it's my incentive. And when you talk about getting into culture, you're saying that an idea becomes so prevalent um, or a concept or, or something that it gets written up in, you know, every media network and, and all the blogs and all the social media discussions and whatever, and it becomes a part of culture rather than just something that a brand is paying to put on a billboard or, or in a TV spot or whatever. It's something that people talk about consciously and intentionally rather than having a brand pay to be put in front of you. Absolutely. And I think if you, if you do that, your idea will probably be quite very successful both in terms of creativity because I think that's what piques people's interest and then also in effectiveness because if it's in the mouths of um, people, you've, you're probably you know going to push a lot of product. How do you create an idea that is ripe to move into culture? First of all, you need an understanding of culture. And usually that can be, that might be things that you hate, like that you just don't like at all. Like for me, that's getting home some nights and watching, you know, film clips of artists that I'm not into at all. Like, you know, you might watch the latest Justin Bieber film clip or you might. I like Justin Bieber. That's okay. Like uh, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a <laughs> totally acceptable uh, thing for that. You know, occasionally he does um, bring out a good tune, um, but I won't admit it. Um, other, other than on public forums. Yeah, on, um, on a podcast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> what's oh, your favourite? That's my next question, Dan. What's your favourite Justin Bieber song? I wouldn't know how to... Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know the names of them, to be honest, but um, yeah. Maybe that one when he, you know, more recently when he uh, got in touch with uh, Diplo. <laughs> All right, let's get back on track. So, uh, ideas that move into culture, right? It's about understanding culture. But how do you how do you actually do that? How do you understand culture and... Yeah, so I think I think to understand culture, you have to consume a lot. Take everything in. So, look around the world that you're in and, and what people are doing, um, especially in other fields. Like, advertising isn't the place to find culture. It's, they might spit out culture and try to create culture, but they're not the ones that are truly creating it. So, you need to, you need to stay young and, and have a young person's mentality and, and know what they're into. And at the same time, though, you know, you might be advertising to 60-year-olds. So, how do you learn what someone older than you has and what experiences they're going through? And the only way to really do that is to kind of get yourself into their shoes, like be empathetic of what, what their issues are. Yeah, so you're like watching uh, uh, Neil Diamond's film clips on YouTube instead of Justin Bieber. <laughs> that could be the, yeah, that could be the case. But, and also there's some, um, like on, to that point, there's some amazing resources out there where older people do connect on the internet and things like that. So they're things that I learn off, like, because I, I don't p- pretend to be an expert in anything. I just think you need to be an, an all-round expert. That's why I think as well you find it's a younger person's industry as well because when, like you said, when family comes in, um, it takes a lot of time and, and you don't have time to stay on top of that stuff and you might become less relevant. To be in culture is to be relevant. This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia. With Open Unis, you now have the flexibility of studying single-module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in an entire degree. So, this is perfect if you're a busy professional, um, you don't have to go to night school or anything like that. 
This is a brand new initiative that Open Unis has created, which allows you to upskill for your current role, or maybe take the first steps towards a new one. And they have a really broad range of subjects that you can learn about. Things like technology essentials for managers, or financial decision making, or perhaps if you just want to learn something new, maybe you could study cyber terrorism and information warfare, or democracy and dictatorship. There's over 100 units to choose from on topics from business to economics, technology, media to law. There's so many more. So instead of going to night school, why not work in a way that's flexible for you? Uh, you can work in your own time and learn about some really fascinating topics. To find out more about how to study a single unit from a leading Australian university with Open Universities Australia, head to open.edu.au. And thank you very much to Open Unis for your support of MATE. I want to talk about side projects. Actually, it's quite prevalent in advertising where people will be makers. You know, they'll go and just build something for the sake of it. Uh, it's not tied to a client. It's not tied to uh, even necessarily a hobby that they have. It's just like they think something sure exists or, or, or they have just a, a, a random idea about like, oh, this could be fun to make. And, and they go and create this side project. You've done this a few times. Why do you create side projects? Or why is it important to I kind of use that as a way of getting work out there because I think when you're an advertising creative, a lot of work does die and a lot of work just doesn't come and see the light of day, um, especially the work that you want to make, the work that you're proud of and, and actually has that difference like we were discussing. So, for me, it's it's, it's about having output and, and and shipping like more projects for my personal goal. And I think when like if you were to sit down in an interview with a, with a traditional creative, they're much more interested in that stuff um, provided that they have a logic sense and, and they're smart, those side projects. Yeah, it's kind of like you get to um, you get to work on a project uh, of your choosing rather than waiting for the perfect brief to come in from a client. You just can like make your own brief and be like, this thing in the world sucks. I'm going to create a way to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I try and have a bit of fun with because I think it frees me up and I think it it's just refreshing to not take on such a serious problem. Yeah. What's one of the side projects that you've worked on that's been uh, really successful? When planking... Um, became really, really popular. That's the, the social uh, behavior of lying flat on something, right? Like you yeah, would lie horizontally on like a park bench and then take a photo of it and upload it to social media. That yeah, was planking. Yeah, and it was, it was absolutely ridiculous and people yeah. were dying over it. And I was like, what is this all about? Yeah, they'd so, fall off like um, hotel balconies and all kinds yeah. of stuff because they were being stupid. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, I just thought, how crazily brilliant is the stupidity of the internet? I thought to myself... So, I thought, why don't we just take pictures of people standing up and call it pillaring? And so, I, re- I, branded, that, I branded that as the um, lighthouse edition of planking. It was, it was safe. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And then from there, my role in that, which, which is what I, this is why I kind of enjoy side projects because I use them to teach me skills that I might not have, not, not to be an expert at, but just to understand them. And it's a social experiment, right? Absolutely. And I think that, that was part of it. And then also like from that job, I guess I learned how to create content because I was, I was taking pictures of me standing up, sleeping against a wall, replying to people that like our fans on Facebook that we ended up, I think, getting 3,000 fans in like the space of like two nights. Yeah. And I was sitting there for like eight hours a night, like content managing this, uh, this Facebook page, which yeah. was just insane. Like I had no, no sleep at all. But um, 
It was just so much fun. And I love that it became this part of culture to the point where it got written up onto like national press and, and hit the airwaves with Triple J and, and things like that, where they formed um, hypotenusing, where you take a, uh, where you take a plank a pillar and you hypotenuse a person between them, which I, um, I, I found highly entertaining. Okay. All right. So, so it's a bit ridiculous, but it's a, a, an interesting case study, I think, into uh, into the kind of side projects that you can create, right? It doesn't have to be like something that is a piece of work, right? It's just like a, an, an interesting idea that injects itself into culture and becomes a bit of a fad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, tell me about some, uh, a side project that you've worked on that has been a catastrophic failure. Um. I don't know if I've done enough to say I've had a failure. Surely something has has you tried to launch it and it didn't succeed. So I've been working on um, this blog called Twenty Five Going On Five, which has its own website, which I'll, I'll get um, Adam to share. But um, my thought there is that I believe like that most kids that enter children's contests, such as like coloring competitions or the show or the competitions that you see on Saturday Disney, probably already have a lot of toys and have a, like quite a good life especially if they're watching like Nickelodeon and they have like Foxtel, like, come on kids, you've got everything. Um, that kind of challenges me to, um, as a creative of these, because they're called the creative geniuses of the world children. So I've found like a loophole in one of their um, their competitions, which is that you have to have a parent that's, or a guardian that's over the age of 18 to be able to submit to these contests. Yeah. So I thought- Because I don't see any like infants wandering down to the post office and absolutely. posting or, or you know, yeah. uploading a picture to a website, right? Like they don't know what the hell they're doing. Exactly. So I thought, you know, by reading down the T's and C's, I was like, that is my opportunity to strike back at these children and um, <laughs> enter these competitions, <laughs> um, which sounds horrible. But at the same time, if I win those competitions, I'm going to donate all those prizes and, and, and toys or whatever to charity. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Let's just go back a step. So you- you, as a grown adult man, are going to enter kids' competitions. <laughs> that is that is absolutely correct. Right, I just so want to get that clear. Watch out, children who are listening to this podcast. You are going to be a victim of me. Okay. All right. And so, what type of competitions are these? I've entered like, um, I think, three. I just do one a month just to keep it manageable. Yep. And get this, man. So, like, when we were kids, we were doing colouring competitions with pens and pencils. Yep. These kids today are doing colouring competitions, but they're digital. On like iPads and shit, of course. Yeah, not yeah. even iPads. It's like on the website and you pick a colour oh, really? and it fills. Wait, well, wait. It's, so- <laughs> it's lazy. Wait, so there's no lines to colour within. It's just like, I want this colour to fill up this section. It's well, it's 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 basically paint by numbers, but you click in the section and it will fill that area yeah. with black lines around it. So you're just filling in the, the blank spaces, which is like a colouring competition. But that's not there's a no pen competition. Over- I know. Okay, all right. There's- we, we need to do something about this. There's, a, there's a whole other side project that's coming out of this. Definitely. Uh, anywho, so what happened? So, the way that's failed is I haven't won. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what the hell? So, so I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I've got to obviously change my strategy. <laughs> so, you're getting... <laughs> this is the best part. It's like, uh, I'm like, you know, a, a late 20s male adult that's entering kids' competitions and I can't fucking win them. <laughs> Exactly. What's <laughs> happened? Uh, it's like you. everyone should think you have this huge leg up on kids. Like you've got many years experience. You know how to like color. You know how to like write the 25 words or less thing just like way better. You have command over like dexterity over your limbs. You don't shit your pants anymore. All right. <laughs> exactly. But you still can't beat the fucking infant. <laughs> I know, man. It's killing me. And I even like on the last one, for example, I ended up like giving reference to it. Like I put like 
Japanese land of the rising sun, like <laughs> like background on it. I gave like the horse some pink hair for creativity. Yeah. And then I gave the body of the horse brown, like for realism. Like, and they can't sure. even recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever see the, uh, do you ever see who wins these competitions? And, and you're like, uh, what the fuck? Like, this is horrendous. How did this beat me? Uh, sadly, I, I I don't think you get to know. Like, I think they send right. like email it directly, but because you know, it's probably very dangerous if I did. Like, because I don't know what I would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's very funny. Um, so, what's the plan from here then? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep going. But you need to change your strategy, right? And this is why I asked you about the a failure. What have you learned from that failure, and how how is that gonna change things going forward? My uh, input looks probably like coming from like an older person. <laughs> it's <laughs> Which too is, obvious. Yeah, it's too obvious. So, I think, you know, if it's a traditional culling competition, I would go from my right hand, my main hand, to, to my left hand to make it look like I was a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got, to, I've got to think how a kid would think and just think about the audience that are, are judging this work. So, how does a kid think? Um, I don't know. That's my problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think more, cre- like more creatively in terms of like, like, like I think creatively, but I think they've got no logic. Like they just do, like, and they don't really think about what they're doing. Like they'll they'll put a color wherever they want. They'll they'll like, write oh, a yeah, word horse wherever is they green. want. Yeah, sure, yeah, like, totally. Yeah, maybe they've got an insight to the world that I don't um, anymore. Which which you know I'm, I try to hold on to, obviously. But you know you can only be a kid once, right? So you you can only hold on to so much. Let's uh, let's check back in uh, at a later episode and see uh, when when you get a winner and then uh, and then what you do with that winner as well because then yeah, that, that's another interesting side project how it's going to morph and you go all right well like now that I've won do I reveal it do I email the company and be like ha ah, suckers yeah. or like w- w- how does that how does that work yeah what's next hey yeah. um what's the what's the follow up what's the PRable moment from that yeah totally and I guess there's a balance there isn't it it's 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 kind of fun some people will love it. But then I imagine there'll be a lot of angry parents out there as well. So I've got to be careful. <laughs> Actually, yeah, you're you're fucking with like a really passionate audience. Totally. But I think mums of like uh, young children is not yeah, someone you want to mess with. Totally. But I think at the same time, hopefully that charity angle um, gives me a little <laughs> bit of freedom there, you know, to, to pass those on to kids that actually need stuff. Maybe not freedom, but maybe a security blanket. Mm, maybe that's what, maybe that's the word I'm looking <laughs> a for. Deflection yeah. shield when all <laughs> yeah. the tirades of abuse come in. Make sure uh, your real email address and phone numbers not on that website anyway. Definitely. It's very <laughs> anonymous. This uh, my entries, but I've given it away now. Let's just touch really quickly on uh, maybe the the king of side projects, uh, a, a gentleman whose name you introduced me to, Ivan Cash. Who is he? Without me knowing a whole heap about him, but I know a bit about his work. Um, he's like a he's a, cr- a traditional creative that got into agencies. Um, and then found himself making this this amazing work that hit culture like we've been speaking about. Um, and he thought, why don't I just do this all the time and kind of took the entrepreneurial kind of mindset and just started creating things. And from there, he has had so much success because if you look at where he's worked or, or the companies that he's worked with, they're, they're like Facebook, Wyden and Kennedy, which is probably one of the best agencies in the world. And there's multiples of those agencies and there's multiples of those types of companies. So obviously by him just doing and not doing stuff for in a professional stance, has furthered his career to make that type of work that he likes making, but for brands. I'd almost like to find Ivan Cash as more of an artist. Yeah, than, absolutely. You know, an advertising creative or... Yeah. I can't remember what um, title he uses on his website. I think it is Interactive Artist. I think okay. it is. Or it was at one point. Or, or like Interactive 
creative or yeah. creative artist or something like totally, that, right? Yeah. So, like, he's kind of um, pulled away from the the communications or the advertising kind of roots that he had and, and now he's kind of made this into a weird career. And he's had some interesting campaigns as well. Uh, he'll handwrite uh, your emails and, and mail them to you. Um, yeah. Or he got a group of people to do that at least. And so, it's like so you can connect more with, like, the the things you get sent. Yeah, uh, Because no one gets... No one gets Snail mail anymore. Anyway, he's got a whole list of his portfolio and stuff on his uh, on his website. Uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes and, and you can check it out. Yeah. Do you make your bed in the morning? I do not. Why not? Uh, because I don't sleep at night time. <laughs> I end up uh, <laughs> I end up um, getting up so late before I get to work that I need to just run out the door. If I'm getting into this like subconscious mind of myself, my mind is like always on, like it never kind of stops. It's always going to the next thing. And I think making the bed gets in the way of that. Yeah, I think like knowing you for a number of years, I think um, your personality causes you to be, I was going to say messy, but I don't think that's the right word. I think scrappy uh, is 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 maybe a better way to do it. And I, you mentioned being a perfectionist um, at one point. I have never seen you as a perfectionist because you're more of a doer than than me. I'm more of a thinker and a ponderer before I act. You kind of, you know, if you think like I'm like ready, aim, fire, you're ready, fire, aim. Um, and you're kind of already doing things and testing them and playing with them before you move on. That's kind of like how I've always seen the way you approach things. Yeah. I have the ability to compartmentalize that now though as well. Like I think I used to very much so be like that, but now- Working on bigger projects at work and things like that, you um you need both. You need to be able to you need to be able to think and then do, but you sometimes you also need to be able to do, which I think is a really good balance for a creative because sometimes just by doing you find. I would consider you a fairly successful advertising creative today. You know, we, we worked together very early in both of our careers, um, and now you're uh, a Khan lion winning and a DNAD yellow pencil award recipient, you know, <laughs> some some fairly major advertising awards that put you on a somewhat of a pedestal, right? Like, um, you may not think that way, but um, I knew back in the days when you were a nobody. Uh, <laughs> 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 but, yeah. I, I, like, so, I, I want to set the stage there. Like, you know, you've won some really prestigious awards. Yeah. That's undeniable. Thinking back on your career, you know, when you got started- if you could go back in time and speak to your younger self, you know, let's say seven or eight years ago when you were just kind of embarking on your advertising career, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I think because I'm quite resilient, I think that's important. But I think at the same time, just not to take everything so to heart or to be so serious about it. Because I think at the end of the day, like usually if something fails, you're going to get something better. Just by keeping that energy up, I think, and, and not getting down is probably something to kind of keep hold of. Sometimes I can drop my head a little bit, but most of the time I'm up back up pretty quickly. Right. So, you, you kind of try to give yourself a bit more perspective. I guess so, yeah. I think maybe see the bigger picture. Um, Which is easy to see in hindsight totally, rather than yeah. in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, also at the same time, um, I guess understanding of um, roles within an agency as well gives you perspective on that as well, which I think I have quite well now but obviously there's some stuff that i still don't know exactly what what like you know for example an accounts would be doing but knowing that stuff helps and, and like i said it's empathy right like you're putting yourself in their shoes and what their challenges are and how you can make the work better for them and more sellable for them and make it you know just be reasonable about it yeah sure 
What's exciting you right now? Right now, being on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, in in general, right now, like in life, in life, right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, in, um, in culture, right now. Well, in culture, it's like I can't really answer that because there's so many things. I'm really interested in artificial intelligence. I think it's an amazing, amazing area. If I was to say that, what excites me is that ideas excite me and they're always going to excite me. There's never anything else that truly excites me like that. It's contributing and I think it's really no- it's amazing to solve problems. And who should I interview next on, mate? I think someone that would be really interesting would be someone from Amazon that has a perspective over that business because obviously they're coming into Australia and, and you see all these stats and figures like floating around on LinkedIn and they're, they're doing amazing versus other retail spaces that are struggling. And I think it'd be such an eye-opening... Um, kind of just wealth of knowledge that we probably as consumers don't understand like how they're so successful. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd actually love to know what Amazon's doing right now. Yeah, like, absolutely. What preparations are they making to yeah. enter Australia? Are they, you know, finding all this like warehouse space to, to set up distribution centers yeah. or are they focusing on updating the, the website technology so that it could handle a different country and currencies? What kind of financial preparations do they need to make? Um, what logistics setup do they have? You know, yeah. are they going to set up their own fleet of trucks and, and you know, postal deliveries or are they going to work with Australia Post? Are they going to, I don't know. I think that whole thing would be really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it'd be so insightful. And yeah. so, like, like, the amount of business knowledge that that place would have would be huge. Yeah, look, like, Apple right now is the most valuable company in the world. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people think that Amazon is going to be the first trillion dollar company. Yeah. Uh, I think they are the third or fourth most valuable right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the speculation is that they are going to uh, they're going to overtake Apple um, and I think Google, which is number two, uh, and, and spear forward because they just play in so many spaces. Like what we spoke about there was just like their retail offering essentially, but they have a, a cloud service which is super profitable. They're working on um, like no doubt that they're working on artificial intelligence as well. Jeff Bezos has a, a rocket company very similar to Elon Musk. Yep. Amazon is really the true conglomerate. You know, we yep. talk about like Procter & Gamble that's a conglomerate that has, you know, different um, business units and they play in different spaces. But Amazon is really the true conglomerate. They own nearly every piece of a supply chain. I think the only thing that they maybe don't do is manufacture all of the goods. Yeah. Uh, they're not necessarily like running the farm to pick the fresh produce, um, totally. but they do everything else in that supply chain, basically. Yeah, and but but at the same time, I guess that business wouldn't surprise me if they ended up doing that, yeah. you know? Like, it's so big and has so much, yeah, growth potential. They're going to eat the world, which yeah. is uh, frightening. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. No worries. It was an absolute pleasure. Like, really good to chat. Thanks for listening to Mate. If you'd like to view the show notes for today's episode, just tap on your phone screen now or you can head to the website matepodcast.com slash 34. As you listen to this right now, I'm uh, gallivanting around Los Angeles at uh, the podcast conference Podcast Movement. Uh, And next week, I hope to bring you uh, some lessons from my time there. I'm going to interview some people who are creating podcasts that reach millions uh, and the people who build the technology behind it. So continue to tune in next week for more information on that. In the meantime, 
I want to thank Josh Armour for editing today's episode, Courtney Carmen for designing the beautiful Mate Podcast logo, and the artists of Mate Podcast's music. Our theme songs are by Nine Inch Nails, and our ad music is by Ben Sound. For more information, head to matepodcast.com. This episode was produced with love and a hungry stomach because Dan and I recorded for a long time and we're pretty hungry for dinner. Recorded in our hometown, Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. Any final questions or words of wisdom? Nibha football rules. <laughs> Doyle rules. <laughs>